0: We can turn back to the chapter we read there, John 16, and we can read verses 8 to 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There are many features of the Christian life that are very striking. but what makes them striking is the Holy Spirit. Without him, we would not have them. And therefore, since he is the one who gives them to us, who enables us to experience them, who enables us to expand in our understanding of them and in our enjoyment of them, it's good to think about Him. And that's what I want us to do for the next few Sunday mornings. What does the Holy Spirit do? Today, I want to think about what He does at conversion. And after that, what He does throughout our lives. He does a lot of things. I suppose the first question to ask is, who is the Holy Spirit? And I'm sure all of us can give the answer to that question. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons in the Trinity. He is divine. He is the eternal God. He possesses the same attributes as the Father and the Son possess. We expect Him to do something after we leave every service. I mean, what's the point of a benediction? At the end of the service today, we're going to say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father. And the communion of the Holy Spirit or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's not referring to what's happened previously in the service, it's actually referring to what's going to happen after the service. When an announcement is made, it's not a prayer. The benediction is not a prayer, it's an indication of what each of the divine persons are going to do. So this afternoon, having heard the benediction, we should expect that the grace of Christ should be with us. And that the love of God should be at work in us. And that the communion of the Holy Spirit will be happening. Because if these three divine persons are not doing that, why did we say the benediction? The benediction indicates some things that each of them loved to do. There used to be a suggestion around, don't know if it still is or not, but there used to be a suggestion around when I was young, that the first mention of something in the Bible was very important. And that the first mention indicated something about the topic that people should bear in mind afterward. Where is the Holy Spirit first mentioned? And what does it say about him when he's mentioned? He's mentioned in the second verse of Genesis 1. And uh, there we're told that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. We might think that's a, a very strange statement. But it does tell us something about him, doesn't it? He's been likened to a bird, the way a bird hovers over its nest. Each of the divine persons has got certain roles, and even in that first statement of the Holy Spirit, we can identify that somehow, or for some reason or other, part of his role is to do something with the world. That picture tells us also that he's omnipresent, doesn't it? The waters cover the earth because God hasn't yet started the days of creation or the activities of each day of creation. Holy Spirit there it's not just hovering over a one location. He's hovering, hovering over all of it. We could say that he's hovering over where Britain is yet to be, or where Australia is yet to be, or Antarctica, everywhere. And he's not more present in one space than in any other. So Even in that brief statement way back in Genesis chapter 1, we're being told, aren't we, that he can work anywhere in the world. And he can work anywhere in the world all at the same time. We're also deduce from that illustration that he's giving life. I mean, that's what he's doing there in Genesis 1. As he hovers over inanimate matter, we might say. And all the subsequent events of the six days would not have happened if he hadn't hovered over the world before it started. All these evidences of life that appear later on, they all come because he had been at work. And if that rule about the first mention is valid, then we should expect that whatever the spirit works, there will be life, whether physical life or spiritual life. As I mentioned, he's likened to a bird. It's not the only time he's likened to a bird. On the day of Jesus' baptism, he descends on Jesus like a dove. And it may be the case that the bird that is illustrated in Genesis 1 is also a dove. Who knows? But anyway, his manner of presence while indicating his power also points to his gentleness. And that should cause us to think that any time the Holy Spirit is going to be described doing something, he'll be gentle. Often we have the assumption that power is something dynamic like some kind of explosion. How about the power to lift a butterfly? To do it without crushing. The Holy Spirit is infinite in power. We don't think of him like an explosion, surely. He comes gently. That's the way he does it. Don't know what we have in mind sometimes when we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be seen. I think sometimes we've got an idea in our minds that people are going to be overwhelmed. Sometimes that may happen. But is it the normal, the ordinary way he does things? Or does he come calmly, persistently, perhaps secretly, and just works, and gives life? That verse in Genesis 1 indicates to us that it's the Holy Spirit's role to touch the creation. As I said, each of the divine persons has specific roles. And when we think of the Christian life, who regenerates sinners? Who enlightens sinners? Who touches their minds? Who sanctifies sinners? It's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Even Jesus, when he did his miracles, how did he do them? When the the lepers were healed, how did Jesus do his miracles? That's not a question without an answer. Because Jesus himself gives the answer. He says he does it by the Holy Spirit. If I, by the Spirit of God. And that's what he says in one gospel. If I, by the Spirit of God, do these things. And in the parallel verse, another gospel, he says... If I, by the finger of God, do these things. And what's a finger for? Is it not for touching? And it's good to have the Holy Spirit as the one who touches the creature. Because we want to put it this way. His finger can go where nobody else can. So what does he do at conversion? One want to think of four things. He convicts us of our sin. He reveals Christ to us. He comes to indwell us. And he connects us to the church. And these four things happen conversion. Conviction of sin. What does that involve? Well, it's an experience that people have. It's also an experience that people have that other things happen at the same time which may have nothing to do with the conviction of sin. Sometimes we think conviction of sin is something so intense that we're almost driven out of our minds. But is that conviction of sin? What is there in conviction of sin? Well, there's a realization that we have fallen short of God's standard. The average person out there doesn't care anything at all for the fact that he or she has fallen short of God's standards. It doesn't interest them in the slightest to come up to his standards. They just live life by saying very obviously, who is the Lord that we should obey him? It doesn't cross their minds that there is a divine standard. But there is a divine standard. And what is that divine standard? It's perfection. We have to live sinlessly, continually, and grow in holiness in order to please God. And we don't do it, do we? The word sin itself just means to miss the mark. And the idea has been explained, and as I'm sure we know, the idea has been explained from archery. The person with a bow and arrow wants to hit the bull's eye. It doesn't matter if he happens to get an inch away from the target or if he manages to miss it altogether, he's fallen short. The person that is only an inch short can't say to God, well he can, but he won't get anywhere by saying it, he can't say to God, but I'm a lot closer, a lot better than him. Doesn't matter. You've fallen short. Of course, in reality, nobody is an inch away from a target. Everybody is miles away. But the Holy Spirit, he just comes and shows us that, that we've fallen short of his standard. And that's a kind of rational thing, we understand it and we should be concerned to discover it because a failure to come up to God's standards means we're going to face His wrath. But there's more to it, to conviction of sin, than just realizing we've fallen short. It means that. There can be an emotion, well, there must be an emotional connection. Humans are emotional creatures. Our feelings do get involved. And there is regret. We regret sinning against such a wonderful God. You know, if I was to draw something and somebody picked it up and looked at it and after two seconds threw it in the bin, that wouldn't bother anyone, would it? Because that's where my piece of art deserves to be. But if somebody took a painting by a well-known artist and threw some paint on it, That would be regarded as very serious. But throwing paint on a work of art is nothing like waving your fist in God's face. And when we realize that that's what we've been doing, when we've been choosing another way apart from his commandment, that we've just been saying to God, get out of my way. When we realize that, we start to regret it. Did I really live like that? Against such a beautiful God. You know, when I was young, I thought God was a spoil sport. You know what that revealed about me? I had never seen him. I hadn't grasped remotely what he was like. God is beautiful, he must be because he's perfect. And when we think that we have rebelled against such a good God, a God who had our temporal and eternal good at heart, then we start to regret it. How foolish I have been. But there's more than just realizing that we've fallen short, and there's more than regret and conviction of sin. There's also repentance. We repent of our sins because we discover that the God we've sinned against wants to show mercy. We don't repent without realizing that. I mean, why should we repent? if we don't know there's mercy. Repentance is a response to the discovery that the God who knows all about our sins delights to pardon. We repent in the presence of God, not from a distance. Regret can keep us at a distance. Regret can keep us a mile away. But repentance is actually a very good experience. Because we come into God's presence and receive pardon. The prodigal son. How did the father react to him? in the illustration. How did his father react to him? Well, he just ran and embraced him. As somebody said, it's the only time in the Bible that God is seen to be in a hurry. And when we repent of our sins, and of course there's a sense of shame and all that with it, but God embraces penitent sinners. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The one we've sinned against embraces us. And that makes repentance a beautiful experience. You know, if I don't want to repent, but merely tell God I regret doing something, I'm missing the point. God is not looking for regret only from me or from you. He's looking for repentance. And repentance goes into God's presence and says, Lord, I've sinned. I've sinned, and I know it's terrible but I know that you're merciful and I ask you to pardon me, to cleanse me. And God doesn't say, that's the 500th time you've asked that today. He pardons. And if we don't believe that, We don't understand God. So he convicts us of sin. How do we know we've been convicted of sin? When we go to God and repent. If whatever we thought about sin hasn't taken us there, It's not the Holy Spirit that's doing it. It might be our own conscience. It can make a lot of noise. But it's not the same as the Holy Spirit convicting us. And then the second thing he does at conversion when he convicts us, and of course conviction of sin might not take very long, For some people it does, as John Bunyan describes in his grace abounding. We're not to pick up grace abounding and say this is how it happens to everybody. That was a very unusual experience that he had. And sometimes people have unusual experiences because they're going to have unusual lives. Which he certainly had. A conviction might only take five minutes, but it might take five hours, five days. But when we come to Christ, that's the point of conviction. And the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us. Of course, that must mean we must need to be told about him. and. God arranges for that to happen. I mean, he's arranged it for all of us here to have to hear it. I'm sure most of us have heard it innumerable times. Every time, the primary arranger was God. And the Holy Spirit tells us about Jesus. He's Christ's agent to tell us about himself. read that in the chapter. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would take the things of Christ and reveal them to people. Lots of things he could tell us about Jesus. I'll just summarize it. He tells us that Jesus is a suitable Savior. In what way is he suitable? He's suitable because he meets our needs. The needs that he sees, not the needs that we might think we have. What needs does he see? What are the two real needs that we have if we're not converted? Well, we need to give to God, as I'm sure we know, a perfect life, and we can't do it. And we need to pay to God the penalty for our sins. And we can't do that either. But the Holy Spirit, he just comes along and says, you can't do it. And that's actually good news. So if we are trying, some or other, to climb the ladder to impress God, throw the ladder away. The Holy Spirit comes along to us and says, you can't do either of these things. But I know someone who's very suitable to do, because he's done them. And he just says this, that Jesus is a suitable Savior. Suitable to make us right with God. And there's no other way to be right with God. When he reveals Jesus to us and we believe in Jesus, we know that our penalty for our sins has been paid. Jesus did that on the cross. And when we believe in Jesus, his beautiful life, his sinless life, his spiritually life, is reckoned to our account. Did you think about that today? Have you thought today about your justification? Of how you're right with God? Is there anything else happening in your life that's more important than that? If I hadn't thought if I haven't thought about it, you know what I should say to myself? Shame on you. He is a suitable savior. The Holy Spirit also shows us he is a suffering savior. He takes us to the cross. And where does he take how does he take us to the cross? In the Bible. That's the best place to see the cross. In fact, it's the only place to see the cross. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the the, the accounts in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit just kind of says to us, come and I'll show you what happened." when we see the suffering saviour. And it's good to see the suffering saviour. You know, each of the gospels, the gospels aren't biographies. How many biographies do you know that spend over 25% of them describing the last week of the subject's life? The Gospels are accounts leading up to the cross. And there we see the suffering Christ, and we embrace him. He's died for us. But the Holy Spirit also shows us that Jesus not only died for us, but he lives for us. Now he's in heaven, he's no longer on the cross. How does he live for us? I suppose lots of words can be used to describe that. But he lives for us sympathetically. Up there in heaven, on the throne, there's a man with a human heart. He understands He really does. Everything we go through, and the Holy Spirit shows it to us. And we just embrace Christ. That's two things he does at conversion. Convicts us of our sin and reveals Jesus to us. Then he comes to indwell us. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside our hearts. Isn't that extraordinary? The one whom the heaven of heavens cannot contain. There he is inside the hearts of his people. Jesus said that there in this section of John's Gospel. He'll be with you and he'll be in you. That means you've got a great privilege. It means we take the Holy Spirit with us everywhere. Whatever we're doing, maybe you're out with your friends. The Holy Spirit's with you. Maybe you're watching the TV. The Holy Spirit's with you. Maybe you're having a family argument. The Holy Spirit's with you. Sometimes we wonder about where the Spirit will take us. Maybe we should think about where we take him. Because he is within us all the time. And the illustration Jesus uses there of him indwelling us, is like somebody having a house. We go, if we were living with somebody, we'd be living in their house. The various rooms in the house, would have, we, would have, we would have access to them. But the Holy Spirit comes to indwell our hearts. And in our hearts are three rooms. And he expects to be in each of the rooms all the time. And the three rooms are our minds, our affections, and our choices. And the Holy Spirit is there each time we make one. He's there when we're thinking. He's there when we're expressing our affections. And he's there when we're making a choice. We can imagine how in the house when someone persists in making a wrong choice it causes a bit of disturbance a bit of sadness well how about the house of our hearts as we grieve the spirit maybe by what we think about and by what we say show our affections on and what we choose to do because he's there. He's come to be our indweller, our friend, our helper. It's good to have him, isn't it? Is he happy? And then there's the last thing I want to mention. He connects us to the church. Sometimes we don't think about that very often, but Paul reminds the Corinthians about this when he says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This happens to all converts. Baptism, he's not talking about water baptism there. He's talking about divine action. We're united to the body of Christ, we become part of it. Happens to all converts. Doesn't matter who we were before we were converted. It could be Jews or Greeks, Jews or Gentiles. That's the only kinds of people they were, wasn't it? And Paul says it could be slaves or free, and that's the only kind of people there were at that time. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background was or is. It doesn't matter what your social status is. If you're in the body of Christ, these other things are now irrelevant. And, of course, a a body is a living thing. They've been brought into something that's full of life, and the reason why it's full of life is because the Spirit is there. And the whole issue of the church being a body is a very common New Testament reference. I mean, the one thing about a body normally is that every part of it goes in the same direction. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. And he says in that verse in 1 Corinthians that when we join the church, this is not a denomination, of course, this is the church of Christ. When we join the church of Christ, we're given heavenly supplies. Everyone is given it. Because he says, all were made to drink of one spirit. That's lovely, isn't it? All were made to drink of one spirit. Outside the body, it's all dry. Nothing to satisfy the soul. Inside the body, plenty of drink. What is there to drink? Well, Paul tells us we drink of the Spirit. I mean, Jesus used that illustration, didn't he, when he said that for those who believe in him, that out of their inner man would flow rivers of living water. He doesn't say into them would flow rivers of living water. But out of them, in their hearts, the Spirit is there. And it just flows. And we're invited to drink of what he provides. And how do we know what he provides? We'll be stopping in a minute. But how do we know what he provides? Well, they've been classified for centuries as a means of grace. personal ones, and public ones. If we want to make our souls dry, just ignore the means of grace. Reading the Bible, not as a chore, I've got to get this done. Read the Bible to meet God, to meet Christ, Pray. Just talk to him. That's what prayer is. Talking to him. His promises. As Spurgeon said, that all checks to take to the bank. And just say to God, you said this. Don't say it like that, of course. But remind them, you said it. What's the point of the promises that we don't tell God about them? He said these Ask me for these things. Fellowship. You know what happens when we don't have fellowship? We become isolated. It's guaranteed no fellowship, spiritual dryness. And there's also the public means as well church services. They're crucial for our spiritual lives because that's where we drink of the Spirit. And we can't substitute one for the other. We need both. The Spirit thought so much of the church and so much of you if you're a Christian that he joined you to it on day one. So as we conclude, how should we react to this? one is just to think about the four things he does when we're converted thank him for convicting you of your sin best discovery you made apart from discovering Jesus it's very important to know ourselves don't run from conviction of sin If the Spirit is telling you who you are, that's who you are. Thank him for revealing Jesus to you. Has he done that to your neighbors? We pray that he will. But has he done it? But he's done it to you. He's done it to me. Think about him living with you today. Living in you. There's nobody else you'll be with throughout every moment of this day apart from the Holy Spirit. And rejoice in the fact he's connected you to the only body that's full of life the church of Christ. Shall we pray?